Hi, this is Panel Beater and this is the podcast of Triple R's Radiotherapy, a weekly radio show dedicated to health, medicine and well-being. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia every Sunday. Hope you enjoy the podcast and feel free to get in touch with us via Radiotherapy's Facebook page. Thank you, everybody out there in radio land, whether you're on the wilds 102.7 on digital, streaming us online, or you might be listening back on demand um, or via the podcast. However we're getting into your ears, um, I hope you're enjoying the show or will enjoy the show. This is Panel Beater, and I'm very pleased to be joined via Skype uh, with Dr. Sharma and Dr. Neo. Good morning. Morning to you. Good to Good be morning. here. Now, um, Dr. Sharma, you're in Melbourne, and uh, Dr. Nia, you're uh, wearing the hat of a r- rural and regional correspondent this morning up in uh, sunny Mildura. Is that right? I am. I am. I've got my Kubra on, my <laughs> RM Williams on, and my Flanny on, uh, despite <laughs> it being 40 degrees. Not that we're stereotyping, are we? <laughs> no, not at all. It's just the, It's just what you have to do. Well, you're outside your natural habitat of uh, uh, Melbourne, aren't you? Yes. No, it's very. It's quite different to um, the inner northern suburbs that I'm uh, normally accustomed to. But uh, I've been adjusting. You've been. How long have you been up there at the moment? Uh, this is about six weeks in. Six um, weeks. And I still can't go outside between nine a.m. and three p.m. because I'll burn. Right. Right. Pretty harsh, huh? Oh, it's very harsh, but uh, <laughs> we make do, make do. <laughs> and how much longer you've got to go? Four more weeks. So that's our standard rotation, uh, 10 weeks. Yep. Um, and I'm, I'm back to inner city Melbourne with um, espressos and brunches. <laughs> You're making real jurors sound like um, oh, the middle of nowhere. It's not, though, is it? <laughs> no, no, it's not. Um, lovely citrus fruit up here, nice river. <laughs> Uh, it's got it's got its quirks and and its uh, and its beauties. Yeah, sure, sure, sure. We're going to uh, unpack that with you a bit later, aren't we? Yeah, most certainly. Good stuff, good stuff. And Dr. Sharma, how are you keeping? I am keeping well. Just uh, waiting for this vaccine that's due to be rolled out very soon. Yeah, we're not. Um, I'm in category one A as one of the quarantine workers, so I think no, a lot of the vaccination starting on Monday, but I think I'll be getting vaccinated the week after. Uh, can't wait. Right, right. And and how, how? what is the process for 1A people? What do you do? Do you just uh, turn up to work one morning and somebody's there waiting or do you have to go somewhere specific? <laughs> so there is actually a, a vaccination clinic that's been set up for, for us, for, for quarantine workers. But I think for uh, in that category 1A, there's, there's lots of different people. So, for example, uh, at the airport, for airport workers, there's a makeshift clinic that's being set up there. Yep. And uh, obviously for quarantine workers, there's a place. And in fact, the government's sending out a specialised group of, of nurses out to aged care homes to start vaccinating some of our most vulnerable uh, elderly Australians. So it's it's very much, a, you know, we're, the, we're, we're going out to find the people and vaccinate them there. And um, which one are you getting? Are you getting AZ or Pfizer? Look, we, we haven't been told yet, but I'm, I'm quite confident that it's going to be Pfizer, uh-huh. um, just because uh, that's what I assume, that's the stock we've received so far. Yep. Um, so although we haven't been told per se, I'm, I'm almost certain it's going to be Pfizer. Yep, yep. Um, there's no, just a, a quick aside, I guess, um, ultimately, even when both are in the country, we don't get a choice, do we? It's whatever's available at our, at our nearest uh, centre. Is that right? Yeah, that's exactly right. I mean, we uh, we have to remember the vaccine is the most wanted substance on the planet right now. Um, so th- there are limitations on what we wish we could get. Yeah. Um, um, but yeah, I think we'll just be taking whatever we can get. And I think once there's this understanding that, oh, look, there's going to be, you know, m- potentially more generations of vaccines coming, it just makes sense to take what you can now. Yeah, brilliant, brilliant. Um, but otherwise, uh, you're keeping on your toes with, uh, with all things uh, health and medicine? Oh, look, always on my toes in this profession. You you always feel like you're, you're one step behind, especially the, this this pandemic. Uh, you know, you're, the, there's a, new, 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 new things always popping up and new yep. challenges to be yep. aware of. So um, yeah. That was a very loaded question because uh, we're going to be talking about misinformation in a moment, aren't we? 
Oh, well, with all the uh, the rumblings of this week with Google and Facebook, uh, Jesus, you just reminded how much power these institutions have. And so it's really making me think a lot about misinformation. So we will have a chat about that soon. It was uh, really interesting, uh, listeners, uh, in the preparation for the show. We started talking about ideas for the segment a little while back and misinformation came up. Um, and this was before the... Uh, the Facebook events of last week where we got to watch in real time, um, you know, the, the debate around Facebook's relationship to information communication. So we'll be uh, taking a look at that um, in a bit more detail with Dr. Sharma um, about half past the hour this morning. Um, but our first guest for the morning, um, just shortly after a uh, quick sponsor break in a moment, uh, it will be Mary Sheehan. Mary Sheehan's a uh, historian who's uh, closely involved with an exhibition taking place up at the National Museum of Communications, National Communications Museum. We'll actually ask her about that. I hadn't come across this museum before. Um, and um, Mary's expertise is in um, the... Uh, Spanish flu, the period of the Spanish flu uh, in Australia, um, and is currently looking at um, uh, a compare and contrast, in a sense, with uh, the COVID experience. So we'll be chatting um, to Mary um, very, very shortly. And uh, I uh, was able to have a chat with her uh, on the phone in the lead-up, and it was some really interesting things in common uh, between now and then, and also, obviously, some uh, important differences. So we'll just take a uh, quick couple of sponsor announcements and uh, get um, Mary on the line. We'll be back with you in a moment. It's Radiotherapy with myself, panel beater, Dr Sharma, and Neonatal. Back in just a moment. This is a podcast from Triple R, an independent media organisation in Melbourne, Australia. Triple R is listener-supported radio and receives no direct government funding. If you would like to financially support Triple R by donating or becoming a subscriber, hit up rrr.org.au to find out how. We're really pleased to welcome our guest for the morning, um, Mary Sheehan. Mary Sheehan is a uh, historian and a member of the Living Histories team who's published multiple commissioned histories and is now undertaking a doctorate at Melbourne University examining the impact of the Spanish flu pandemic in Australia. Mary, can you hear us? Yes, indeed. I hope you can hear me clearly. Oh, loud and clear, Mary. Wonderful to have you with us. Thank you very much for including me in your wonderful show. It's um it's really timely to have uh, have you on to to take a look at some comparisons and contrasts with um with the uh, Spanish flu of over a hundred years ago or just around a hundred years ago and today. But before we get there, I just mentioned before we came to you that um, until we were connecting, I was unaware of the National Communications Museum, and I'm. Got a sneaking feeling that I'm not alone on that. Can you just bring us up to speed on where it is, what it is, what it covers and what it's doing? Right. Um, it was formerly called the Telstra Communication Museum and it was located in uh, Hawthorne in Burwood Road. Mm-hmm. Um, it had very limited opening hours. It's now been extended to become the National Communication Museum and embraces the other similar museums throughout Australia. Right. Um, this is their, I guess, their first exhibition under the um, new Aegis and um, it's a virtual uh, exhibition, as you'll be aware. Mm. Um, and I think it's been very popular. It's been terrific the way they've made contrasts between now and, and the past. Yeah. Uh, and talk- there are differences and similarities too. Yeah, look, we'll put some of the details up on our on our social media, but uh, listen, they want to um, use the Google fingers to find the National Communications Museum. We're talking about the Connecting Through COVID um, exhibition that's currently running. Now, Mary, you're a historian with an interest in um, the Spanish flu pandemic. Um, can you tell us uh, where your where your interest uh, lies with that uh, more specifically? Sure, um, I came to this area of interest. Um, I've been writing commissioned histories for a number of years and I was writing a history of um, nursing at St Vincent's Hospital and came across a nurse who uh, was uh, reported in the annual reports to have died but she didn't have a name and I thought that was a bit crook. So I set about trying to find her who she was 
and after that got um, hooked on Spanish flu. It was only a couple of years ago in 2019 that I was able to um, devote the time to a doctorate in this area. Mm. I'm uh, looking specifically, though, at Spanish flu in Melbourne. Right. Um, And I guess that suggests that there's an important distinction to be made between looking at it in Melbourne compared to uh, elsewhere in Australia. Is that right? Uh, Melbourne is different. When I say specifically at Melbourne, I will be looking at other uh, areas in Victoria. Uh, There are other hotspot areas for a variety of reasons, whether they be um, coal mining areas or whatever, the people there were far more vulnerable or ports. Um, But, yes, Melbourne and pandemics are different. I mean, we can see this nowadays. They're different, the rollout. Right. Um, And it it was quite different in Melbourne than it was elsewhere. Just before we get to there, just one scene-setting question, Mary. Tell us uh, what was Melbourne like in 1919 where a young federation and we've just come out of a First World War. I know that much. What else should we know? (laughs) Well, it was, I mean... There were a lot of traumatised people, naturally. Uh, there'd been a huge number of deaths, uh, something like 60,000 deaths, um, which were pretty devastating, um, most male population, and pretty devastating for nation building. Um, there was also um, some... Um, uh, there was also sectarianism. The sectarianism had developed during the during the war over conscription debates. So it was a pretty tough time then. Um, and the other big difference too was that there were there was um, no safety nets, no safety social safety nets. There was only old age pensions. Um, so if your husband. Oh, there were pensions naturally for um, soldiers, but if you your husband died and you had six kids, you're on your own. I mean, there was just nothing could be. There was nobody to help but charity, which is yeah. pretty pretty desperate. Goodness me, how was um how was Spanish flu making its way here? Was it returned soldiers, ships, obviously, were the main form of transport? Um, look, there's a big debate about that. Kenton, it's, uh, sorry, panel Peter. It's uh-huh. okay. <laughs> um, I've let the cat out of the bag now. Haven't <laughs> <I>? <laughs> um, there's a lot of debate about that. Um, look, it escapes, as we know, viruses, um, uh, particularly of the virulent sort, can escape. There were some very strict quarantine regulations. Um the, uh, and also the travelling from, say, South Africa, it took several weeks. So, you know, they pe- the soldiers were quarantined on board anyway and it would have been detected. But, um, look, who knows? Who knows? Uh, you know, it could have been here in Australia in a different form and, and a variant. Um, uh, look, who knows? I'm not an epidemiologist. So <laughs> I'm not sure. <laughs> Mary, I mean, hearing those words like quarantine and, uh, and you know, I know there were even border controls around that time too, they, they've stirred up so much controversy now. What was the feeling around these kind of policies back then? What was public sentiment like? Was there opposition? Was there, um, you know, did, or did people kind of understand this is what we need to do? Um, how did that play out in that context? Uh, the border controls, you mean, Dr Sharma? Yes, that's right. Yes. Um, I think... It was quite different then because you've got to remember it was a very new nation. Um, There had been uh, each colony previous to that had held quite, uh, were sovereign colonies. Um, They reluctantly joined as a federation for defence and postal services, etc., but not with health. And the only control the Commonwealth government had in relation to health, was quarantine. But the new newly formed states still had their quarantine legislation. So there was a lot of... Um, uh, there was a lot of conflict. There was also jealousies between the states as well. Um, and it was interesting that New South Wales closed its border 
after um, after the flu had escaped into New South Wales, um, and um, it was really a uh, uh, their move was was um, to do so was really uh, uh, I suppose to punish Victoria, Mary, uh, uh, because there was sorry, yeah, sorry no. there was an agreement that if an adjoining state was infected, they wouldn't close their borders. Hmm. Mary, you just um, none of us are constitutional lawyers here, but that that's been a point of contention uh, um, in the experience of COVID nineteen. That quarantine yes. is a is a federal matter, um, but we of course we've seen the states um, electing to close borders from time to time. And given that we've just been talking about how it was a young nation, this perhaps was one of the first times that the federal constitution and the states um, really tested that relationship, right? Yes, certainly. It was um, the first domestic trial of the uh, of federation. Um, and it was, you know, I, I guess the from what I can see, the federal government just work with it, let it flow and and insidiously uh, um, moved in to, to um, implement better controls. I've got a question. I mean, just hearing a lot of these things, you'd swear we're talking about you know, just uh, things that are happening right now as opposed to back then. They, they seem so incredibly familiar. I'm curious to, to, to hear... Uh, how these things, how just the, the pandemic in general was discussed in the, in the media and amongst people back then. I mean, now we see so much of the focus uh, is on misinformation and controversies about masks and vaccines. Uh, do we know much about how that discourse was conducted in Australia? Um, well, it's very similar in a lot of ways. It's, it's really weird, Dr Sharma, doing research now because... I could be in 2021 with the, the material I'm reading and the reactions I'm getting. Um, at first, um, there was the, you know, naturally the blame game, um, and that was the Bolsheviks were held responsible, um, God bringing um, a vengeance on a population, um, was also the Germans. So there was a lot of in the blame game. In terms of news, newspaper reports when it arrived, there was a lot of news about its its um, uh, heading in this direction uh, because it was a much slower process than it was um, in 2020. Um, there was a, a lot of information, but it was contradictory. Honestly, if you read the newspapers, one newspaper one day will say uh, we're getting on top of the numbers are, are decreasing and the others will say there's a dire dire problem, mortality's rising. So it's very contradictory. Mary, with that in mind, you know, what was the media environment like? Um, obviously, or I'm saying obviously, but correct me if I'm wrong, newspapers were the um, were the main source of information for most people. There was, uh, my understanding is there was a much more diversity in, in the types of newspapers available at the time, you know, morning editions, evening editions, um, not to mention different companies and publishers um, and, you know, a smattering of radio around the place. What can you um, say about that media environment? Uh, there wasn't any radio, um, Albert, oh. that No, that predated radio. 19. Um, yep. So print media was really the only means of communication. Um, the other means of communication was um, uh, tackled by the government in... in um, forwarding uh, flyers and and um, etc. Et to provide information to the, the general public. Not everybody could afford a newspaper either. There were the mechanics institutes that they could visit, but again, you had to pay to be a, a member of that as well. So information was far harder, naturally, to um, to distribute to the community. I think I'm, I'm very curious about when I look back, uh, especially kind of from, from the medical side of things at the 1918-1919 uh, kind of pandemic, um, how, one thing I'm very curious uh, uh, about is just how controversial masks were then and they are now. Um, it, it appears so. Was there much of a conversation about masks in Australia in the same way? I mean, just, just yesterday we had these kind of these... The, these big rallies held by these groups, you know, of course, they were protesting, you know, 
vaccinations, um, but we've seen similar rallies about masks. Were people as uh, was it as politicised back then as it is now? Um, look, I, I don't believe it was. I think um, the general public was far more compliant um, uh, than now. I think individual rights and liberties weren't questioned quite as much. They were coming out of the war too. You must you must remember where. Uh, civil liberties uh, had been reduced anyway. Um, it was interesting, though, that the approach to masks was quite different in Victoria than it was in New South Wales. They were mandatory in New South Wales, um, and in Victoria it was only... Um, uh, they weren't mandatory only in church. Um, <laughs> except the minister didn't have to wear a mask. <laughs> That doesn't mean that there weren't other restrictions. Pubs were closed, but um, I think the lobby of publicans was quite strong. So if they were reopened with a cap of 20 clients. Right. Um, but everything else where there was um, numbers of people gathering, were they, were, um, uh, they weren't permitted anymore. So I guess the masks weren't as vital. But, yeah, it's an interesting... Um, uh, contrast. Mary, it's Dr. Neo here. Um, Dr. Chalmer touched on a good point about the politicisation of masks. Yes. Um, and I was just wondering if the same uh, game of politics was being played during the Spanish flu. Were Was it uh, the federal versus the state government? Was it the state governments acting by themselves? How did it play out? Um, look, there. Was, I, I must admit, it's a um, it's an area that I still need to uh, look into, Dr. Neo. I really haven't done enough research on it, but just from what I've I've done so far, um, there were problems in as much as the health system was quite different then. I, I touched on earlier that there was no uh, health control by the federal government, but at state level, it was shared between local governments and state. Um, and that created huge problems because local government had to bear 50% of the cost of setting up emergency hospitals and looking after the sick in their area. Um, afterwards, it became quite a heated topic um, with the state government in um, head counts, you can imagine the squabbles, um, so that they could get rebates for the money they had invested. Um it was politicised too. Um, in as much, in um, for example, the the um, exhibition building was opened as a as a um, as a venue, hospital venue. Um, that was open because, in haste, I might add, um, because that an arrangement had been made with the military, with the Commonwealth government to allow um, the hospital in St Kilda Road, the military hospital in St Kilda Road, um, which is now the site of the Arts Centre, uh, of the Monash's um, South Bank campus. Um, but they reneged at the last minute after allowing a few patients in, they refused to admit any more. The exhibition building had to be opened and there was a lot of blame gaming with the health minister and the um, and uh, the um, health department at the time. Um, the other problem that arose was sectarianism raised its head as well mm. um, because the, uh, the Catholic Archbishop at the time, Mannix, he offered to send um, St Vincent's nurses and nuns over. The hospital in exhibition was largely staffed by unqualified people, hmm. volunteers, and um, he offered to send uh, have the nuns from the St Vincent's and the Mercy nuns go and care for the, the patients. Um, then uh, uh, Reverend Worrell, the... Um, Protestant Mr. Goat was outraged that a, a Catholic group should move in and, and look after <laughs> patients in the exhibition buildings, and it became a, a just a terrible sectarian issue that was reported throughout Australia, actually. And, then, and in the end, they had to withdraw acceptance of Mannix's offer and, and um, the 
e exhibition building limped on as a as an emergency hospital. And how did that manifest socially, Mary? Was there uh, violence, or was there just antagonism, or something in between? It was interesting because a lot of people were outraged that uh, with um, Reverend Worrell's comments. Um, one woman wrote a lot of letters to the editor and a lot of editorials on it, most of them in favour saying, look, we've got this battle to fight and we should be fighting it the best way we can. In fact, one woman wrote in and said there were no um, uh, religious or denominational dif differences on the battlefield. Huh. Why should there be on this battlefield? Yeah, right. Um, but the government was faced with another problem. They persuaded all of these volunteers to come in and work. He could, they could hardly tell them to go home. Um, so it was, yeah. you know, it was a horrible situation the government got themselves in by accepting Mannix's offer without discussing it with the um, with the staff that were already at the exhibition hospital. Right, Mary, you were touching on restrictions a moment ago, and. Um, uh, I, I really want to get to a really important matter, and that is um, Richmond losing the 1919 grand final to Collingwood. Um, it, 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 I guess that's because Richmond was particularly damaged by uh, incidences of the Spanish flu. That's the only explanation that Collingwood won. Is, is that right? I'll look into that panel, Major. <laughs> I'll see what I can find out. As far as I could see, there was no um, football wasn't cancelled at all. Yeah. Racing was. Um, and yeah. the autumn carnival was was cancelled, but as far as I can see, football wasn't. I'm, I'm, I'm starting to wish the football was cancelled. No, it wasn't because they used to start later in the in the season. Yeah. 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 Hey, um, yeah. just by way of uh, wrapping up, what are the what are the two, three, or even just one um, lesson we can take away from uh, the Spanish flu uh, with our COVID experience a hundred years later? Yeah, I mean, there's a whole lot we could, but I guess the main thing, um, as far as I can see, is that things like um, the panic throw up the vulnerabilities in our society. Um, and I think if we can look to that in the future to just um, be prepared and correct those um the vulnerabilities and maybe even improve the structures in which, you know, with their, their place socially. Yeah, yeah. Mary, it's been a delight uh, having you on and uh, we've covered a lot of territory. It's good to um, recognise that, you know, some things are never new, you know, everything goes around, comes around and uh, this uh, Spanish flu experience, as you've just pointed out just a moment ago, um, gives us some lessons for, for today. Um, thank you very much for being with us. Well, thank you very much for having me on. It's been a great pleasure. We've been speaking with um, Mary Sheehan, who's um, working with the Connecting Through COVID exhibition happening at the National Communications Museum. We'll put some details up uh, on our socials very shortly. You're listening to a Triple R podcast. Discover more podcasts from Triple R, exploring science, technology, food, books, social issues, politics and more. To listen, hit up the Triple R website or your favourite podcast platform. Dr Sharma, misinformation in health is pretty crazy at the best of times. During a pandemic, uh, there's a whole layer of complexity. What's going oh, on? Absolutely. I mean, we are going to barely scratch the surface of what is turning out to be uh, such an enormous issue uh, for health. Um, you know, I, we go back all the way to February 15th, 2020, where even a month before COVID-19 was declared a pandemic, the WHO declared an infodemic, this global epidemic of misinformation uh, rapidly occurring through social media. And you know, it's just been absolutely inescapable for all of us, everything from conspiracy theories to you know, false cures and everything else. And you know, the mo most powerful person in, in the world was involved, uh, a research paper from Cornell University cited President Trump as being the single greatest driver of misinformation. And we just look at all the stuff that's happened since, you know, Twitter and Facebook have had to start to self-regulate, taking down posts, labelling the president's posts, taking enormous action to, to delete 
fake accounts that they believe were amplifying this misinformation. So, yeah, I really see this very brief discussion as a teaser of something that I think we're going to cover in future. But at the very least, yeah. I think we can at least define what we mean yeah. by misinformation. Yeah. So it's the, it is false or inaccurate information that's communicated, but regardless of what your intent is, um, whether it's to deceive or, or not. So when we talk about medical misinformation, you know, there are claims that are still being legitimately scientifically debated. That's not what we're talking about. We're talking about things on which there is a consensus view, and yet despite that, people are spouting that inaccurate misinformation, maybe because they believe it's true or they're starting rumours or it's a, it, it's a deliberate prank or something a bit more kind of weaponized. Um, so that's what we're talking about when we talk about misinformation. Yeah, Disinformation it's... is just like... The, a subset of that when it's done to be deliberately deceptive. Yeah, so, yeah. but you know, kind of putting that aside for for most purposes, because a lot of stuff is just misinformation is just you know nonsense out there because people really think it's true when it's not. It's not just difference of opinion, right? You know, that's uh, that's crucial. Um, misinformation can come from pretty much any direction, right? I mean, I think probably. When, when I think of misinformation, I'm, I'm tempted to think, oh, that's just, you know, different media have different agenda and um, that might be the motivation for the misinformation. But um, our politicians, even dare I say some some quarters may be there marginal, but some scientists even um, and, and so on. There's no sector that we can... 100% say uh, is immune, pardon the pun, from uh, misinformation. It's exactly right. It can come from absolutely anywhere. So, you know, we look at everyone from Pete Evans to, to, to Craig Kelly to some uh, very kind of fringe, uh, I suppose, uh, professionals, I suppose we can call them. Mm. Um, mm. And yet the, the, the factor that seems to be common, of course, is the way that it all spreads, which is through you know, kind of social media. Now, when we look at the, the laws uh, and regulations we have currently in Australia anyway to kind of control these things, they really only pertain to um, to advertising. Um, so if you're literally advertising uh, for the purpose of you know, selling a, a specific therapy or, or a test, so there's some really strong laws uh, around that. Or these laws pertain to, um, say, uh, someone who is a, a medical professional. So who are you're being regulated by the Board of Regulators, which is uh, APRA. Yeah. So... This doesn't really cover uh, the sources that you would have mentioned, which is, for example, politicians who are spruiking nonsense when they're not advertising something or someone sitting at home who may have a big social media following. So those sources aren't really covered by these very kind of patchy laws about advertising and being specific to healthcare practitioners. Yeah, no. uh, because everybody else uses the free speech angle, right? This is what I think. That's exactly right. And yet we are, I think we are discovering the... The, the bounds and limitations of that, that freedom of speech. So I think this is being recognised now and um, in the absence of strong laws, uh, the social media giants, I think they're doing what they can to, to well, maybe they're not doing everything they can, to, to self-regulate yeah. because if they don't, it's pretty obvious what's going to happen. There are going to be uh, uh, laws that are going to be imposed on them. So uh, the latest on that in Australia uh, is that the Australian Communications Media Authority is, is asking for... Um, uh, a code, uh, of, uh, at the very least, of a voluntary code that's going to do something about this in social yeah. media, where there is greater signalling of credible, relevant information, increased detection of monitoring of fake accounts, and uh, you know, updating of service and community guidelines so people can take action against misleading inf information. But basically, the you know the unless these these tech giants can self-regulate, it's it's now untenable, and I think it's recognised there are going to have to be some laws that are going to be imposed. So we've seen some of the tech giants take this self-regulation to a variety of different levels over the past year, uh, particularly. Are there any that are doing it better than others? Like, for example, Twitter with the blue tick um, labeling different accounts as US politician account or, you know, or Facebook uh yeah, look, I think they're all in their infancy, but I think Twitter's probably got the most structured approach I've seen so far. So they've got a new trial program called Birdwatch, um, which is this community-based approach to misinformation. Basically, if you see something, you can make a, you can label it as misinformation and then make an explanatory note uh, explaining the context of it. So it's still kind of in its infancy for now. Um, you know, Facebook is saying that they're working with third parties and all this other stuff, and um, and they they've released uh, this. 
um, this it's almost kind of this this board where they show the most kind of viral pieces of uh, of kind of content out there. So maybe other people, uh, kind of third party fact checkers can can fact check it. But this stuff is just in its absolute infancy. We are playing catch up on something that is just you know, absolutely enormous. So I think this is going to be something that's going to take years and years and years. Um, but all I can say is that until now, the you know the way they've kind of gotten away with it is saying that you know the, their algorithms are going around banning things um, uh, that, that that are seen as misinformation. I think we're all recognising now that's an incredibly blunt tool, mm-hmm. and uh, you know we all saw the effects of that algorithm just very recently with Facebook this week in Australia. Their algorithms took down what they perceived to be uh, news. <laughs> Um, websites and we saw that it was far too broad. A lot of things that weren't technically news um, were taken off. Um, There's so much know, revealing about that little episode, isn't mm. there? How quickly that happened, and yet the uh, Christchurch ch- shooting was still up. What thirty six hours or something? Isn't that incredible? I, I think it signals two things. Firstly, algorithms by themselves, incredibly blunt tool for a very fine grained problem, and secondly, the decision to go ahead. To, to, to use an algorithm for such things tells us that it's probably not a, ma- a massive priority for these tech giants, no. which is why you know, I think, especially when it comes to medical misinformation, they will need to be told that this is yeah. very important to the yeah. community. Now, Dr. Sharma, you've mentioned um, on numerous occasions, and it's really pleasing to hear, how impressed you often are by patients that come to you in their in their level of informedness. You know, it may not be um, obviously at a trained medical level, but they've made an effort to, you know, use their Google fingers to find out some information, come to you, and they've got a, a decent amount of vocabulary that they can um, explain to you what's going on for them. And um, in that consult, you're able to work with them really quite well. That's sounds a really like uh, positive indication that people are maybe reasonably good at sorting the wheat from the chaff. Um, how do we reconcile this? If we've got this concern about misinformation, yet people like yourself in GP practice are really engaging with otherwise um, well-informed people, what's going on? Well, I, I think uh, you know, bridging that the, this problem of misinformation is going to have to from, come to from both ends. Uh, the social media tech companies are going to have to do their bit to, to signal information that's incorrect. Whereas um, I think for the kind of consumer end, uh, I think what we can do is kind of raise the floor there by increasing people's health literacy. So at the moment, I think what patients have got is a lot of reach in terms of access to information. What we also need to improve is their kind of um, their dexterous grasp right. um, uh, <laughs> of that information and their understanding. So, the fact that people are keen to reach out and access more information, I think, reflects a very good drive. And I think we're just going to now empower people to to sort out what's false from what's good by, by I think, teaching people some of this basic health literacy. Um, Dr. Nair, uh, are we there? Sorry. Uh, so that's interesting that you've touched on health literacy because it's actually not a very easy thing to go and teach the general public. Like, I still find it difficult to... Uh, find reputable sources on online to for medical content, for example. Like I have to have subscriptions to a variety of different sources, such as Up to Date or the Therapeutic Guidelines, to be able to sort out what is good and what is bad. Um, but I, you'll Google a condition and it'll come up with, uh, you know, Medline or um, Web WebMD, and these are not uh, the most reputable sources. Um, so. How would you suggest that the general public uh, increases their health literacy? Yeah, look, I mean, well, I mean, I don't know if, if there's anything that they can perhaps do specifically to, to do so. I think probably the main thing they can do is learn to distinguish quality of sources. Um, so, uh, you know, WebMD is is not fantastic, but it's better than a lot of other things. Uh, so, even distinguishing that will help, and always favouring government-based uh, websites. Uh, but look, I, I think really this is where we have to step in um, uh, as health professionals and authorities uh, is actually fill that void. So something like, for example, Better Health Victoria, uh, fantastic resource for, for health. And yet something that kind of falls away in the Google rankings uh, a bit, I find, whenever you do Google a health condition. Um, but so I think it's going to be a, a two-way street here. Uh, the government authorities supply more and more information just like I think, for example, the NHS does very well, mm. and the uh, and and public finding they can, they they should be relying on those .gov websites. That should be the go-to. 
And just from my own personal experience, I find a lot of the hospital-based websites are quite um, quite good as well. Like, for example, the Royal Children's Hospital has uh, guidelines for parents on a variety of different conditions and when they should be concerned and when they should be bringing their child to ED. So that's a um, a good one to... Yeah, uh, hard agree there. And, and likewise, Royal Women's Hospital um, mm. has a, a fantastic website and resources for, for parents you know, and, and for doctors. Um, because, again, I, I think they're so close to the ground, they know how to communicate with people. They get the same questions all the time. So I think, you know, kind of health communication that that happens, um, you know, kind of at that level is going to be very, very important because that's where people engage the most. I think above all, um, we should direct uh, listeners, uh, if for most trusted uh, source of information is at Dr. Viom on Twitter, um, <laughs> where you can... Fine. <laughs> you, can, you can trust Dr. Viom. You put that in your handle. You can trust me. <laughs> this, is, this is sounding a little bit like propaganda. Yeah, that's right. Hey, guys, we should leave it there because I want to get back and uh, hear a little bit about regional and rural um, health services. This is a podcast from Triple R, an independent media organisation in Melbourne, Australia. To find out more about Triple R or to explore many more shows, podcasts, articles, videos and interviews, head to the Triple R website, rrr.org.au. Dr Neo's up in Mildura and you're going to uh, bring us up to speed on, um, on rural and regional health services, in particular around um, resourcing and even more particularly around staffing, um, Dr mm. Neo. Yeah, so the... Um, location I am in is classified as basically outer regional, which is about as regional as we get in Victoria. And the government's uh, labelled different regions as uh, differently uh, uh, as a way of as a way of looking at how accessible healthcare is in different regions. So, for example, Melbourne, large uh, metropolitan centre, it's highly accessible. Out here, it's as bad as it gets in uh, Victoria, which is moderately accessible. That's to say it's still quite good, uh, but out in these areas, they're a true generalist service. So it's basically they deal with anything that walks in the door or we ship it out to a larger centre. So that it's quite an interesting place to be and quite an interesting place to learn. You know, I've seen um, hundreds of different conditions and m- many of these I would never see in a large metropolitan centre. Uh, but a few of the major struggles is that as we are so far away from these metropolitan centres, we lack quite a few uh, key members of the healthcare workforce. So, for example, there's a, a distinct lack of specialists. Despite Victoria having one of the highest per capita rate of specialist doctors, we still struggle to get these specialists to visit regional Victoria. Often, there's a few that come out on a monthly basis, but uh, there's very few specialists who will be here uh, on a day-to-day basis. In addition to that, there's a lack of general practitioners, um, which is particularly made worse through individuals knowing GPs personally, not wanting to visit these GPs, having poor experiences with GPs or long wait times for, for quote-unquote good GPs. Um, so I did a little bit of research and uh, found that the government has this very handy tool for examining the health workforce. It's basically the rate of full-time equivalent healthcare professionals. So basically, um, your healthcare professional working at a full-time rate divided by the resident population in an area. And unsurprising, unsurprisingly, we see the more rural we get, the larger the drop in healthcare workforce we have. Sorry, uh, Dr. Neo, can you just repeat that formula for us again? So basically, it's your rate of full-time equivalent healthcare professionals. Mm-hmm. So basically, a doctor working five days a week divided by the resident population in an area. So right. how many healthcare professionals do we have divided by the population? Gotcha. It's basically just a rate. And what is interesting is that the largest drop is in allied health professionals, so your OTs, physios, social workers, dentists, and pharmacists. How this plays out is that all the features of a good holistic healthcare service that examines the patient as a person rather than a disease starts to drop off. So allied health professionals are key in rehabilitation, making sure someone has a good, a good safe place to go home to and will be able to function safely at home. Uh, and this is backed up by statistics showing that people in major cities have a higher rates of rehab compared to people living in remote areas. 
or for example, not having enough dentists, particularly affordable dentists, means that I've actually been seeing re people regularly coming into the ED for things like a tooth abscess. And if anyone knows wow. anything about doctors is that by and large, we are terrible at everything teeth related. <laughs> um, other noble professions that are lacking in regional or remote Australia are psychologists. At the best of time, it's hard to get access to a psychologist that you like and have a good connection with in Melbourne. And this is just infinitely more difficult the further you get away from major centres. And then finally, this is all accumulating in a um, what the government calls potentially preventable hospitalisations, which is basically conditions where hospitalisation would have been prevented through preventative health measures and early disease management. Mm. Um, and this just increases greatly the more regional and remote you get. Um, so that's basically... Like, this is all um, government-based statistics, but it's been backed up pretty heavily by what I've been seeing. You know, yeah. I, I'm i a, a Melbourne-based doctor, but I've been um, – basically, my home hospital has rotated me out to the to these regional centres, A, yeah. to get myself a bit more experience, but B, to also help these regional centres. Um, and that makes up a large proportion of the workforce out here. You know, it's rotating doctors that – or what we call locum doctors – which are basically doctors that are not connected to a healthcare service, but will um, will go to different hospitals and just work for a short a short contract period. Yeah, hearing all this uh, as a GP, my heart just kind of sinks because you, you've described such an incredible double whammy there. Um, it's hard enough with the the ratios of obviously of, of patients uh, down to, to medical services and doctors that are available. But when you mentioned the lack of allied health services, um, these are treatments. And when people don't have these treatments available, this is the, the double whammy I'm talking about. It, it will just proliferate, uh, cause other health problems and complications, which then fall back on the health service. So I think that example you gave of uh, uh, tooth abscesses needing to be treated in emergency departments, I mean, it's just such a you know, fine and kind of sad example of how the problem just kind of compounds uh, mm. you know, on itself. Um, I think as, as a consequence, uh, it, what it means is that as a medical professional who's training, this is the silver lining, I suppose I'm finding it all this, mm. uh, the, the the level and breadth of experience that you, you get from a rural term is just, you know, is absolutely incredible. Uh, but the question is, um, you know, great, we're, 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 we're creating these incredibly kind of educated and experienced doctors how do we get people to stick around? So mm. if you can perhaps reflect on, you know, the short time that you've been there, what are the things you like yet? What are the things that are slightly more difficult now that you're working in these areas? Just so we can you know, perhaps flesh out what would be the things that would be incentives and deterrents for someone to mm. continue working there? I, I love um, rural and regional medicine. You know, I've done stints in a larger rural hospital i've um been to alice springs before you know i have a have a very big bleeding heart for the rural and regional um uh towns and centers that i've visited but unfortunately they they lack a lot of the things that make um metropolitan melbourne medicine very easy uh it's quite hard to see patients who are dying from things that would have been fixed very easily in melbourne so for example there's no um no way to retrieve clots out here um, in Mildura. We'd have to send them to either Adelaide or to Melbourne, which is a four-hour drive, two-hour flight. Uh, and you know, if you know anything about either um, clots in the brain or clots in the heart, you know, two hours may make the difference between a patient surviving and having limited um, consequences from that stroke or heart attack or from dying or being... Uh, chronically ill for the rest of their life um and but the on the flip side working in a small town with uh a stable patient population that you see regularly and with some amazing staff who are here uh, full-time is uh one of the best experiences that you'll ever have like it's um so nice walking into into work every day and knowing pretty much everyone in the hospital, which is not mm -hmm. something that you can say for uh, metropolitan Melbourne hospitals. And even though it's sad seeing patients come back in every you know few weeks, uh, it is nice that you are the one that is able to continue their care. You know, you know this patient very well. You know what they need, and um, you can make steps to 
ensure that they're getting the best care that they possibly can um, in that in that location. Uh, I think that the answer to this is a very complex one, uh, particularly based on the size of our country. But uh, there's been a few good advancements from different universities. So Melbourne University um, has recently announced a program where they're going to train all of a, a, a cohort of medical students solely in Shepparton. So they're going to have only a, root, a rural um, experience and hopefully they'll continue to uh, work rurally. This is compounded by the fact that they prefer they preference people who are rural and who uh, do want to return to their, their hometowns. Um, but then on the flip side, a lot of the specialist training is based in big metropolitan areas. So Melbourne is where you train to be a cardiothoracic surgeon or a neurologist. Um, well, yeah, this is one of the issues, which is that um, a lot of the doctors you know, have to come back to metro areas because their training progression mm. uh, qualified, uh, you know, all that the pathways for those uh, exist mainly in uh, in metropolitan areas. Whereas, if we can make that happen in in rural regional areas, uh, you know, a lot of people like you will will, will be quite happy to go there. Um, yeah, really can't undersell some of those things you mentioned earlier about feeling like you're part of the community, both in the workplace mm. and in uh, you know, where, where you're living as well. Um, I think uh, once you, a lot of us have had that working in rural regional areas, you come back to metro areas, you're like, geez. You know, you really miss that. Unfortunately, you've got to pick, you know, pre career progression versus, you know, well-being and lifestyle. So the, the less we can dichotomize those two, uh, you know, the, the more chance there are, I think, of people sticking around and, and uh, you know, and, and staying there and, and the rural areas being able to keep everyone there, which has been so much of the struggle. Hey, guys, we've come to time. Really interesting conversation. Um, Dr. Neo, uh, so you say you've got uh, four weeks to go? Is that right? Four more weeks. Four more weeks. And I'll be I'll be back in the studio. All right, all right. We'll keep us posted on yes, in the studio. We'll be in the studio. That will be a blast. Um, we were lucky to have um, Mary Sheehan from the National Communications Museum and the University of Melbourne talking to us about the parallels between Australia in the times, or Melbourne specifically, in the times of the Spanish flu and COVID-19. Thank you very much, Mary. Um, a big thanks to um, Max, who will have the podcast up um, very shortly. Um, look out for that. And a big thanks to Dr Sharma and Dr Neo, as always. Hi. This is Panel Beater. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Triple R's Radiotherapy, a weekly radio show dedicated to health, medicine and well-being, broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Sunday. Hope you enjoyed the podcast. Feel free to get in touch with us via Radiotherapy's Facebook page.